ghosts, specters, whatever you want to call them, they've been around for thousands of years. Apparently she died from a tooth infection in one of the upstairs rooms in the house. As at the locations they haunt. History of a Haunting podcast tells you all about these famous, infamous, and almost famous locations. And why they became terrifying places to visit. Grab a glass of wine and settle in with your hosts, Archie. I mean, that was definitely the wrong thing to do. And Carrie. Nobody asked for it, Carrie. Nobody fucking asked for it. But hey, my podcast, and I'll say what I fucking want. (laughs) Two people just winging it in life and this podcast. So enjoy this week's episode of History of a Haunting. Hey everybody, welcome to History of a Haunting. I'm your host, Archie. And I'm your host, Carrie. And once again, we are joined by Laura. Hi everybody. She is our new recurring guest host. Yeah, she came back for another episode. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking crickets. I'm like, <laughs> since we're doing a double recording on one day, she really had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I have very questionable decision making skills. <laughs> I think we talked about that in the break. Like, I make very bad decisions. I don't need, what were we talking about? Hotels and food and. Oh, oh yeah. we were questionable decisions. As far as like, yeah, eating food that like might kill you if you were to eat, like puffer fish. Yeah, we we're talking about food group. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So we're promoting the fuck out of this real well, guys. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this episode, we're going to jump right into it. Um, I don't have any EVPs to go over. Arsh, do you have anything? I don't. No. Laura, do you have anything? Nope. I do not. Okay. All right. So, I um, don't even have a part. <laughs> you don't have what? I don't have a part this week. You don't. No, you don't. Um, um, no, Arch, actually, you don't have a part this week. And you and I had kind of discussed it when we were going over the upcoming episode list. Yep. Um, the location that we're doing today is... Um, well, the, the hauntings and the history kind of go hand in hand. So Archie's part was just going to really be, um, this is what happened on the land. And uh, Carrie, take it from there. And so <laughs> <laughs> um, I decided to, I was like, you know what, I'll just do it. And um, I'll just tell you and Laura the story. So Archie gets to fucking sit back and uh, listen to the story and interject uh, with Laura Um, I did pick this location with Laura in mind because it is one of the more controversial, uh, paranormal locations. Um, uh, so Archie and I go through and and we pick episodes for the upcoming couple of months and we had picked a location that when I got into it and I started researching it, I'm like, ah, this isn't exactly in our wheelhouse. So, which happens a lot. We pick locations and then we kind of get into it and we're like, oh, maybe there isn't that much haunting so we can make it a mini episode for the Patreons or maybe it's something we have to scrap all together. In which case then we sort of have to have like a backup location in mind. So we had to scrap the location we had chosen for this week and I'm like, you know what, we're going to replace it with this. So the location we're going to take you guys to today is the Amityville house. Ooh, good one. (laughs) <laughs> so it is a really controversial location as far as 
um, the hauntings go. It's also a little bit of, it's a little, it's uh, delves into the true crime, which everybody knows I love. So um, we're just going to jump right in. I got my uh, information from History's Mysteries TV show, truelegends.info, biography.com, newsday.com, time.com, phoenixnewtimes.com, and the Daily Mail. Archie's face is like, wow, that's a lot of heavy hitter <laughs> sources. I was going to say Phoenix New Times? Uh-huh. Wait till you find out why. Oh, okay. Yeah. We somehow got brought into this. It's crazy. I was really excited. Um, so, ugh, woof. Uh, it took me a couple of days to, to put together my research because I don't actually know where to begin with this one. Um, everybody knows the story, right? Laura, Archie, you guys know this house. You guys know the gist, right? Yes. Right. Okay. So it is one of the most famous true crime stories and paranormal stories, like, ever. And if the true crime can't be disputed. I mean, it, it's, it's, it is what it is. The paranormal... <laughs> right, yeah, literally, yeah. Um, <laughs> The paranormal side of it, however, um, which is why I picked it, because of Laura, it, it, even to my own mind, and I am a staunch believer in the paranormal, um, I, I'm kind of like, maybe? So I thought it would be a really interesting um, story for the three of us to discuss. So 30 miles. Oh, oh by the way, Arch, I'm going to apologize to you right now. My history is not anywhere near as in-depth, as carefully researched, or as amazing as you always do. So I am so sorry to our listeners and to Archie. It's really just the, the Cliff's notes <laughs> of my history. Um, so I'm sorry. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so 30 miles outside of New York City, uh, which is kind of uh, nestled in Long Island, um, is the town of Amityville. And in this town stands the house that is forever linked to the Amityville horror phenomenon, uh, where on November 13th, 1974, the estate was the scene of a mass murder. Using a 35 Marlin rifle, 23-year-old Ronald J. DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family while they were asleep, including his parents and four siblings. Thirteen months later, the Lutz family purchased the home at a drastically reduced price of $80,000, obviously because of the murders, but they only lasted 28 days in the home before leaving it and their belongings behind. Their spine-tingling tales of paranormal activity are what propelled the legend of the Amityville Horror and spawned a number of books, documentaries, and films. That's that's it. That's what I got. What do you think, guys? No, I'm oh, kidding. That was great. <laughs> Very good story. <laughs> that took you 18 <laughs> fucking pages, Carrie. Um, <laughs> I double spaced. <laughs> I used 195 font. Um, <laughs> so let's kind of rewind a bit. Um, the settlers first visited Amityville, and again, Archie, real rough. I mean, feel free to, you know, grade me on my history. Um, <laughs> because I was writing this, and I'm like, fuck, Archie's going to be like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> 
So apparently settlers first visited the Amityville area in 1653 due to its location um, to a source of salt hay for the use as animal fodder. Now, the Native American tribe that lived on the land at the time um, and their chief granted the first deed um, of land in Amityville in 1658. The area was originally called Huntington West Neck South because apparently it's on the Great South Bay and Suffolk County lines, um, which was the New York border um, in the southwest corner of what was once called Huntington South. I figured you, Mr. Mapp, would appreciate that. Okay. Does that make any sort of sense to you? Because it doesn't to me. No. Okay. You could have lied <laughs> for the people, but fine. Um Okay, so it's totally convoluted, just like I thought. Cool. Um, <laughs> it, it is now. It's the a town. place. It's a place. I mean, it's, it's a literally place. a place on the map. Um, it's now the town of Babylon, which it, it, it doesn't harken back to that. So just so you know. Um, according to village lore, the name was changed in 1846 when residents were working to establish its new post office. The meeting turned into Bedlam. Apparently, the name of the post office was a big deal. Uh, and so the meeting turned into Bedlam, and one partici- participant actually went on to exclaim, what this meeting needs is some amity, which means friendship. The place name is... Um, <laughs> uh, so it kind of was born from that statement. Um The place name is, strictly speaking, an incidental name marking an amicable agreement on the choice of the name. The village was formally incorporated on March 3rd, 1894. Um, In the early 1900s, Amityville was a popular tourist destination with large hotels on the bay and large homes. In fact, Annie Oakley was actually said to be a frequent guest of um, the vaudevillian um, Fred Stone. Do you, I know who Annie Oakley is. I'm assuming you guys do too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't know who Fred Stone is, though. I'm not too familiar with vaudeville. I don't know. No. Um, However, now Will Rogers also had a home across um, Clocks Boulevard from Fred Stone. We we all know who Will Rogers is, right? Yeah, boy. Okay. Okay. Fun fact about him: he was actually a Cherokee citizen and was born in the Cherokee Nation Indian Territory. Oh. Of course, me being Cherokee, I threw that in there because I thought that was fun. Um, also, Arch, I got to tell you, he keeps coming back again and again. Gangster Al Capone also had a house in the Amityville community. Oh, of course he did. Did you know that? <laughs> no. Oh, because you kind of nodded your head like, I knew it was coming. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not surprised. I'm not really surprised either. So other notable Amity villains. Amity Villites? What are we calling them? Well, we'll work on it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Other notable folks from Amityville. uh, Alec Baldwin. He was born there. Did you guys know that? No. (laughs) I didn't either. Uh, De La Soul. Do you guys remember that band? Oh, yeah. Yes. They were from Amityville. Prince Paul, they were, he was a record producer, um, produced one of De La Soul's albums. Rick Fox was a guitarist. Mike James is an NBA player. And the astronaut Kevin Kriegel are all from Amityville. I was, there was a huge list. And I'm like, oh, my, who am I going to? I can't list them all. Um, so I picked the ones I thought were the coolest. 
So that's that on that. Um, (laughs) So apparently the largest killing of Indians on Long Island was in an area that used to be considered part of Amityville, but is now called East Massapequa. So Long, Long Island was divided between the Dutch and the English. Unlike the English, the Dutch didn't actually get along with the Indians. And um, Amityville was located right on the border between Dutch and English territory. Now, the Dutch did not have enough troops, so they hired an Englishman called John Underhill to help them. And apparently Underhill was a very good Indian fighter. And in 1644, he brought the fight to the Indians at their stronghold. During this fight, he killed 120 Indians in the only major Indian battle on Long Island. For this, Underhill was paid 25,000 guilders by Governor William Keeft. If I, again, if I were any kind of podcaster, I would have looked up what a guilder was, but I didn't. <laughs> um, below is a quote about how there was a local legend about the ground being red with blood. In the 19th century, local historian Samuel Jones wrote the following, quote, After the Battle of Fort Neck, the weather being very cold and the wind northwest, Captain Underhill and his men collected the bodies of the Indians and threw them into a heap on the brow of the hill and then sat down on the leeward side of the heap to eat their breakfast. When this part of the country came to be settled, the highway across the neck passed directly over the spot where, it is said, the heap of Indians lay and the earth in that spot was remarkably different from the ground about it being strongly tinged with a reddish cast, which the old people said was occasioned by the blood of the Indians who were buried face down. (laughs) Archie's face, he's like, I'm sorry, what the fuck? (laughs) That's So basically the whole place is built on an Indian burial ground. I feel like we're approaching exorcist territory or it was like poltergeist. Yeah, yeah. Pretty much this whole country is. I mean, basically. (laughs) But I find like... I find when Archie does his history part and he's like, and it was said to be bar- on Indian burial ground. I'm like, okay, you know what? Yeah, but not every fucking square inch of this country is fucking on top of a goddamn Indian burial ground. Like, it's just not, it's just not humanly possible. <laughs> but, so when I saw this story, I actually went in and I did some research and this battle actually did happen. This, this, this actually did happen. So... Amityville actually is buried or built on Indian burial ground. So I'm like, all right, well, I can't talk shit. (laughs) So um, the location of the killing was in Fort Neck, which is about a hundred, no, not 105 miles. Goddamn. Math is hard. Or just numbers are hard. Um, The location of the killing was in Fort Neck about 1.5 miles. (laughs) From no. I mean, <laughs> that's not a huge difference at all. Right. Just, totally fine. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> I've I've only had about six beers. Um, the location of the killing was in Fort Neck, about 1.5 miles from the famous Amityville House, at the corner of Merrick Road and Cedar Shore Road. In 1935, the bones of 24 people were dug up at the site. The bones having been buried face down. Yeah, Archie's face is like, damn, that was true. Um, yeah, that's literally like, I was like, fuck, I can't dispute that. That's It's a historical fact. Let's fast forward to 1974. <laughs> and so we're zipping forward a couple hundred years. I mean, that's right, right? From the 16-somethings to the 19-somethings, that's a couple hundred years, right? <laughs> Your math is impeccable. <laughs> Thank you, as is my English. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Aaron, I'm sorry in advance. Um, so let's talk about the DeFeo family. So Ronald Butch DeFeo Jr. was born on September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. Oh, which by the way, my history part is done, Arch. How'd I do? Uh, spotty, but passable. <laughs> I hate you. What grade did you give me? <laughs> uh, B minus. Oh, but at least I'm in the B's. Yeah. Okay, good. Good. Um, also, go fuck <laughs> yourself. Uh, <laughs> you and your hoity-toity history. Um, it's not easy to step into those shoes. I'm telling you, Archie has really set a precedent. <laughs> I was like, fuck, <laughs> what am I going to do? He's grading okay. you on a curve, you know. I mean, really. Yep. <sighs> okay, so Ronald Butch DeFeo was, this is where I shine. Let's talk about true crime. <laughs> <laughs> September 26, 1951 in Brooklyn, New York. Um, he was the oldest of five children born to Ronald, a successful car salesman, and Louise DeFeo. They were an Italian Catholic family, and Ronald Sr. worked at his father-in-law's Brooklyn Buick dealership and provided the family with a comfortable upper-middle-class upper lifestyle. He also served as a domineering authority figure and engaged in hot-tempered fights with his wife and children, um, which I'll go into a little bit more detail um, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I was like thinking, I wrote, this, I wrote this research a couple of weeks ago, and so I was like, I've got time. No, I don't. It's the next paragraph. Cool. All right. <laughs> I'm glad you're not keeping us in suspense. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk to you about the hot-tempered fights with the wife and kids right now. Um, one story was, and this was, this I had seen on History's Mysteries where they did like a reenactment of it. And I thought, Jesus Christ, no wonder the son turned out to be a lunatic. During dinner, the one night, I guess like all the children were arguing with each other and the mom was downstairs in the basement doing laundry and she was hollering up at the kids, telling them to be quiet. And the dad was yelling at everybody to shut up. And it was just one of those like utter chaos things that, you know, happens in family. So anyway, it was just one of those like family nights that like I'm sure every family has. It was utter chaos. Well, apparently the dad just lost his shit. He got up from the table and he was walking. T- he was like marching toward the basement stairs. And Bush was screaming at the youngest son, Ronald DeFeo Jr., was screaming at his siblings. And so as the dad walked by, he like punched him in the back of the head. The dad punched him in the back of the head. And and as the mom was coming up the stairs with a basket of laundry, he punched her in the face and she fell backward down the basement stairs. And he slammed the door and was like, now everybody's going to be quiet. And I'm like, okay, well, this, I'm starting to, it's starting to lay a foundation for what happened to your family. The most, yeah, it's awful. Um, the most frequent target of abuse was their, their eldest child, Ronald DeFeo Jr., who I'm yeah. going to call Butch from now on. Apparently, because he was the eldest child, uh, there was a lot that was expected of him by his parents. And it only got, got worse at school, the abuse, um, by his parents, because apparently the kid, he was overweight when he was a child, and he was kind of brooding. And so he was also the victim of relentless bullying from his classmates. So as he grew up, he began lashing out physically against his father, as well as his friends, which I guess he only had like a handful of friends. So his family became really, really concerned and they took him to a psychiatrist, but the visits didn't sit well with Butch DeFeo, with with him, because he denied that he actually needed help. 
So I guess the trips to the doctor stopped. <laughs> and um, I mean, I'm sure a lot of families have done this, but in their place, his parents used the incentive of cash and presents in the hopes that the gifts would placate their troubled son. So like, for example, they gave him a $14,000 speedboat. What? Mm-hmm. But the new tactic only made the problems worse because, of course, like, I can do whatever I want and they're going to give me a $14,000 speedboat. Right. Whereas it's like, we'll give you this if you behave was where the parents were coming from. But he was like, and I can beat this person to a bloody pulp and I'll get a boat for it. Kind of a situation. You know what I mean? Like, he was 17. As time went on, he became addicted to LSD and heroin and he was expelled from school for his violent outbursts. Apparently, in spite of this, the DeFeos continued to reward their son. At the age of 18, Butch was received a prized position at his grandfather's car dealership with little to no expectations, which is kind of like the job I think we wish we all had. <laughs> um, he also earned a weekly stipend from his father, regardless of his attendance or job performance at work. <laughs> Cheers. So it's like one problem compounding another. So Butch then funneled his salary, the salary, into his new car, which was also another present from his parents, as well as guns, alcohol, and drugs. So apparently DeFeo's strange behavior seemed to only increase with time. Not surprising. Uh, he threatened a friend with a rifle during a hunting trip, and then later that day acted as if nothing happened. What are you talking about? I didn't point a rifle at your face and threaten to blow your head off. Kind of a thing. I was joking. I was kidding. <laughs> you took that seriously? Oh, my God. Yeah. He also attempted to shoot his father with a 12-gauge shotgun during a fight between his parents. He had actually pulled the trigger at point-blank range, but the gun had jammed. His surprised father ended the argument but was left stunned by the confrontation. The incident foreshadowed the more violent of events to come which that kind of i feel like that kind of gives you an, an insight into the father's mind where i'm going to be yelling and screaming and beating on my family and then when they pull the gun on me i'm surprised what yeah you know what i mean yep. no red flags there none at all no, none at all i mean there may be a pale pink <laughs> at best <laughs> Um, at some point, the father decided to go to the family church, and he actually began putting religious relics all around the inside and the outside of the house. When he was asked why, he said something to the effect of, the devil is in this house. Now, whether he was talking about the actual devil or his son is up for your interpretation. So let's talk about your interpretations. Laura, what do you think he meant by that? Well, I could have thought that his son was possessed. Mm. A lot of people turn that are very religious or turn very religious, you know, could be looking for an outside explanation, especially he doesn't want to look at his own behavior of something that is corrupting his son. Yep, absolutely. That and um, addiction. Yeah. Mm. Addiction tends to manifest itself as a devil is here mm -hmm. kind yes. of situation. Yeah, another way to not accept responsibility for right. anything. It's an outside force acting upon yep. you, not your own responsibility. Refusal to take responsibility. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, so they were an Italian Catholic family. So now I don't, 
as all of our listeners know, Archie and I are not well-versed in any sort of religious <laughs> anything. Um, uh, <laughs> we're more fire, bad, tree, pretty. But um, <laughs> uh, you, you, you always tend to hear more about Irish Catholics and how devout they are. Um, but Italian Catholics, I mean, you know, the Vatican is in Italy and I don't, you don't generally tend to hear so much about Italian Catholics. So Laura, do you have any kind of like, do you have any kind of knowledge about that? Cause can you sure. educate us in any kind of. Sure. So I, I, I grew up Irish Catholic um, I went to Catholic schools um, up to most of high school. Um, okay. So my family is very religious. Um, Irish Catholics are very well known to be very devout. The same thing that you hear about Irish Catholics. It's very family, um, you know, church, very, just like you, assume, you know, that what right. you know of the Irish Catholics so is the same. stereotypical. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would say so. Um okay. And still now, I mean, in Italy, I'm, I'm obviously you said the Vatican is there. It's it's yeah, very ingrained in the society. So is it okay? Yeah. Okay. So I'm um, just kind of like trying to give some sort of understanding as to why the father would have then reached out to the family's church. So uh, <laughs> let's talk about the murders in 1974. Butch, uh, feeling irritated by what he believed to be a meager salary for basically doing very little and showing up whenever he wanted, um, he plotted methods for embezzling money from the car dealership. So apparently in late October of that year, 1974, the dealership actually entrusted him with the responsibility of depositing more than $20,000 to the bank. They had to have known that he wasn't like the most trustworthy or like even reliable employee they had but all right i mean it was 1974 whatever like 20,000 in cash yeah holy shit yeah so defeo to no one's surprise planned a mock robbery with a friend <laughs> agreeing to split the money evenly with his accomplice apparently the plan had actually gone off without a hitch until until those pesky police came to the dealership to question him Instead of actually calmly answering the officer's questions, he exploded into a rage. Declaring his innocence. <laughs> I'm not a cop. Uh, I'm related to police, but that doesn't mean I know anything about investigations. But that, to me, is a tiny red flag. It's a little more than pale pink. It's maybe a rosy pink flag. <laughs> <laughs> But not to them. So when police, suspicious that he was lying, asked him to come to the station and check out mugshots of possible suspects, he absolutely refused to comply. Again, they were like, well, you know, maybe it's a dark rosy pink flag. <laughs> so the father then began to suspect that his son had committed the robbery. But when he, when he questioned his son about his lack of cooperation with the police, uh, DeFeo threatened to kill his father. Big shocker. Big I mean, shocker. At this point, the flag is kind of like bright fucking red, <laughs> but we're still going to turn a semi-blind eye to it. Um, in the early morning hours of November 13th, 1974, about a month later, 
Butch DeVale acted on his threat using a 35 caliber Marlin rifle from his secret gun stash. Again, now it's a neon red flag. <laughs> Everybody needs a secret gun stash. I mean, he entered his parents' bedroom and shot them both while they slept. He then entered his brother's bedroom, shooting them both in their beds. He ended by shooting his sisters point blank in their bedrooms. All the murders took place within 15 minutes. DeFeo then showered, dressed for work, and collected his bloody clothing and the murder weapon in a pillowcase that he dumped, and he dumped all of the evidence in a storm drain on his way to work at the dealership at 6 a.m. Not the brightest crayon in a box. I mean, you'd think he'd be a bright red crayon, but not, no. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Upon arriving to work, he then called home, pretending not to know why his father hadn't shown up for work that day. Saying he was bored around noon, he left work and spent the day with friends. He attempted to secure an alibi by telling each of the people he had visited that he couldn't seem to reach anybody at home. At 6 p.m., he called a friend in mock surprise, saying that someone had broken into the house and shot his family. So that's what... 15, 16 hours after the murders, he's mm-hmm. now calling the police. So fairly significant amount of um, <clears throat> rigor has certainly set in by now. It's probably a pretty gruesome crime scene. The investigation. Friends, after he called the police, friends came to the home and contacted the authorities. When a Suffolk County detective questioned DeFeo about who could have been a suspect in these murders, he told them that he believed mafia hitman Louis Fellini may be responsible. Um, he cited an old grudge between Louis Fellini and the family over some work that the family had done, done for him at the dealership. He also then told police that he had been up late watching TV and unable to sleep. He left for work early. He said he believed his family was alive when he left for work. He then told him about his whereabouts for the rest of the day, and he was actually placed in protective custody as they searched for the suspect. That's good old 70s policing for you. I mean, it was really fucking awful. I mean, Laura and I know, we've listened to My Favorite Murder a hundred million times, and... Policing in the 50s, 60s, 70s and early 80s was pretty horrible. It was pretty bad. So after police more carefully searched the family's house, uh, his testimony began to crumble because they found an empty box of recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin, a box for a recently purchased 35 caliber Marlin in his room. And this gave the authorities pause. This is what gave the authorities pause. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, you found the ammunition. <laughs> I mean, uh, okay. Uh, as the timeline came, timeline came together, it seemed more realistic that the murders had happened in the early morning. The family had also been wearing their pajamas, so it couldn't have happened later, or so it couldn't have happened earlier in the day, which actually placed a fail at home at the time of the homicides, which he did say he was at home. But he, when he left for work, he believed his family was still alive. So keep that in mind because that kind kind of comes back in a bit of a major way. Um, again, they were all shot multiple times in their beds, and when they were found, um, most of them were found lying face down. So, if you remember from the Indian massacre, the land the house is built on. 
Yeah, Archie, yeah. <laughs> Did you hear my eyes roll? I'm sorry. <laughs> you had, they rolled so far back, you had tea with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> they were all found face down, just like those bodies of the Indians were found. Now, again, that's conjecture, that's supposition, that's, um, it, it could be any one of the, like an amalgamation of, of, those, of those things. Um, you also have to take guilt into consideration. A lot of people, family annihilators and such, they don't want to see their victims. They will not look, you know, don't want to see their faces as they, right. As they say, kill yes. them. Yes. Yeah. They don't want to associate. It's a, it's a form of cowardice. Exactly. They don't want to look them in the face. Murder those mm-hmm. who are not facing you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Um, so I bring it up simply because the face down thing is going to come back in a little bit. Oh, good. A third time. <laughs> We're very excited. <laughs> We're very excited. I can, I can, I can see it in your voice. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, they realized the family was still in their pajamas. So it couldn't have happened earlier in the day, which placed him at the home at the time of the homicides, which again, like I said, he said that, you know, he left early and he believed his family was still alive. So I want you guys to remember that too. When authorities questioned DeFeo about the new evidence, he began changing his story, as somebody guilty does. He said that the gangster, Fellini, had appeared at the house early that morning and had put a revolver to his head. He then said that Fellini and an accomplice dragged him from room to room as they murdered his family. With his own gun setting up a frame job kind of thing. Right. And, and then he went to work like nothing had happened. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So as this story unraveled, police extracted a confession from DeFeo and he finally broke down stating, once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. As it does. I mean. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> and it's, it's, it doesn't take long so to many murder. people. So many gunshots. It's ridiculous. I at work. Good morning. No. Okay, so um, the trial and his imprisonment. So the trial began on October 14th, 1975, basically a year from the date of the murders. Now, his defense attorney, William Weber, and I want you guys to remember that name because he comes back in a major way. So the defense attorney, William Weber, attempted an insanity plea for him, and the murder suspect himself told jurors that he heard voices that told him to kill his family. I've I've never done LSD, but I'm assuming that that might be a contributor. I I don't know. Most most likely. (laughs) Um, Well... All the drugs, it seems like, I mean, you don't just jump into just having an LSD and heroin, is it heroin addiction? Yes, you know, I yeah. mean, there's, there's some lead up and... Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> there's gateway drugs you try. You've <laughs> obviously been on this path. For a bit, a bit, you're right. Um, so he took the stand in his own defense and he told the jurors that he heard voices Um Now, the psychiatrist for the defense, Dr. Daniel Schwartz, supported this claim. And he said that DeFeo was neurotic and suffered from a disassociative, disassociative, oh, here we go, Aaron, I'm sorry. Oh, wow. (laughs) Disassociative disorder. Yay! Yay! You can do it. Yay! 
Um, but the psychiatrist for the prosecution, doctored, 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 what? You're on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> I know Aaron's like, oh, you are so fucking close. <laughs> <laughs> and then I fucked up the word doctor. <laughs> <laughs> You got to give her something to do. I mean, she, she doesn't have much. I get it. You're not that busy, Erin. Shut up. <laughs> Dr. Harold Zolan pro- proved that DeFeo actually suffered from antisocial personality disorder. The illness made the defendant aware of his actions, but motivated by a self-centered attitude. I believe we all know people like that. I... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, shut up, Archie. <laughs> I'm sorry, wait a minute, Archie. Are you going to kill me and my family and all your cats and your roommates in our sleep? That would require a lot of effort I'm not willing to put forth. <laughs> that seems like a very full day. <laughs> I'm so tired already. <laughs> I, just can't. I need a nap before all that. <laughs> So apparently jurors agreed with the prosecution um, psychiatrist assessment. And on November 21st, 1975, they found DeFeo guilty on six counts of second degree murder. He was sentenced to six consecutive life sentences and sent to Greenhaven Correctional Facility in Beekman, New York. His appeals to the parole board have all been turned down, largely because he's doing the whole devil made me do it defense. Oh, God. Yes. So here's where we get into the controversial Lutz family's reported paranormal experiences, which took a, a minute to get to. <laughs> a lot of lead up to the ghost part. <laughs> it was a lot of lead up to the ghost part, but it was like, I mean, there was no way that I could get to it without it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't have. Yeah, no. <laughs> so, 13 months later, after this whole, the murders, not necessarily the trial, but 13 month ap- months after the murders, the Lutz family purchased the home. So, due to the property's grim reputation, a friend of the family patriarch, George Lutz, um, this friend suggests that the house should be blessed by a Catholic priest. Now, George Lutz was quoted in an interview as saying, I was a Methodist, so this was new and foreign to me at the time. Father Ray showed up shortly after we were in the process of moving in. I waved, he waved, and he went on into the house and went about blessing it. I think everybody who's seen the Amityville Horror is familiar with this scene in the movie because it is depicted. Um, when he was done, I tried to pay him, but he wouldn't take money. So maybe this guy's related to, you know, Sam McCauley from (laughs) the Bellman from the other episode. Um, (laughs) Father Ray said, no, you don't charge for this and you don't charge friends for this. I thought that was a very kind thing to say. And then he said, you know, I felt something really strange in that one upstairs bedroom. And he described the bedroom. And we said, that's the room we were going to use as a sewing room. We weren't going to use it as a bedroom. And he said, that's good, as long as no one sleeps in there. And that's all he said, and he left. Apparently what he failed to mention was that as he was leaving, um, and this 
scenario that he failed to mention would actually end up becoming one of the most famous scenes in the movie where when he was blessing that room, he felt a slap on his face and a deep voice telling him to get out. Now, Arch, you and I have talked a lot in, in various episodes and locations we have done where people have claimed to be told to get out of a location. Mm-hmm. I think we joked about how maybe it's in the handbook for the recently deceased. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you follow those instructions. Yes, Definitely. Uh, for sure. So apparently the priest backed the story up during an appearance on the 1970s show In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy. Uh, However, he would later go on to say that the only communication he had with them was over the phone. So, you know, we're all kind of shocked and shaken that priests are liars, right? They're really known to just tell the truth. They don't do anything scandalous. No, never. The Catholic Church is a pillar of truth. <laughs> I get in trouble today. <laughs> Let's start off by alienating half the listeners. You're welcome. Oh. oh boy, you heard it here first from the Irish Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say it was a good one. <laughs> Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) So, according to the Lutz family, strange occurrences began almost immediately. Cold spots were discovered in random spots throughout the house. Eerie vibes pervaded throughout the atmosphere. Jolting sounds would wake the family during the night. The escalating chain of events took their toll on the family, resulting in drastic changes in personality for all of them. George, the patriarch, would begin to seclude himself from away from the family and became obsessed over the fireplace that never seemed to warm him enough. Kathy, the matriarch, also began to undergo a series of unnerving events. On more than one occasion, she described being touched by an unseen person, which I've had that happen. It's not cool. Don't love it. It, yuck. Um, And most dramatically, Kathy claims that after waking from a deep sleep, her face was that of an old hag that actually took hours to dissipate. So, I couldn't find that happen. (laughs) After, like, a seriously, like, drunk night? Me too. Me too. I mean, thank God I've got Marcus because he's going to wash that gray right out of my hair. (laughs) (laughs) But I wonder, Archie, like on this kind of thing, and I couldn't ever find anything where she said she looked in the mirror and she looked like an old hag. Like George also kind of corroborated this. And he was like, yeah, I looked at her and she looked like she was, you know, 30 years older. But you and I, Archie, have talked a lot about in recent episodes about um, staring into a mirror for a lengthy period of time and your mind just sort of fills in, um, I can't remember what it's called. Do you remember what it's called, Arch? I don't, but I can look it up. Okay. Um, Where you stare into a mirror long enough and your brain starts to like fill in 
information it doesn't find relevant so if you're staring at like your face you can see like demon eyes or your face can like slide down and you can your brain starts to fucking make up shit that it doesn't find it starts to fill in gaps of things that it doesn't find relevant in what it's looking at and it's called the oh the Troxler effect yep yay so maybe this was like the Troxler effect happening, except that George also corroborated that just looking at his wife, like in bed, she looked like an old hag, which I don't know. Maybe he was just tired of her not putting makeup on or right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, just seems kind of rude. <laughs> <laughs> How many times have we looked at our significant <laughs> other and been like, you could Is do- it Troxler effect or did my wife take her makeup off? <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, we've all seen the YouTube videos. Makeup is, an, is, it's magic. It's magic. Also referred to as peripheral fading. Okay. I mean, it really could be any one of those things, a bored husband or the Troxler effect. <laughs> really. <laughs> or stress if they're having such a hard time in the house, you know. Stress will make you look old really fast. That's true. That's true. That's very true. So I guess even the kids, the Lutz children, so there were two boys and a girl, um, they began to argue more than usual, which would result in terrible beatings from their parents, because that's always effective. I mean, just ask the DeFeos. God, Carrie. I'm not sorry. I'm I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry at all. Um, the youngest child, their daughter, Melissa, who they called Missy, she described speaking to an angel that was living in her room. This angel, the child claimed, was named Jody, and Jody was able to present itself, itself, as a large pig to her and change shape and form at will. Uh, George and Kathy claim to have witnessed two red eyes peering in at them from the upstairs bedroom window. Um, Missy believed that it was Jody wanting to come inside. They've also seen the same red eyes peering at them when they were downstairs outside the house, looking up at Missy's window, two red eyes peering at them from inside. And George claimed to have seen pig hoofs, in the snow outside the house, leading from the house, but then like not leading, like leading to the lake's edge, like not leading really anywhere. And they didn't own a pig, but their daughter claimed that this angel could change herself into a pig with red eyes. Now that at the time, this child was seven years old. So. Well, here's here's the terrifying thing about angels. Um, angels can appear as they wish, but apparently in their most natural form, they have like thousands of eyeballs covering their bodies. So to see one can actually be quite terrifying and send men into madness. What's your source for this? I, I cannot remember right now. I'm looking it up. Um... According to Ezekiel 1, 5-11, they're described as having the likeness of a man and having four faces, that of a man, a lion on the right side, an ox on the left side, and an eagle. I, I swear I remember hearing somewhere that they're actually quite terrifying to see. 
Well, I have read before that you can't, humans cannot actually look upon the face of an angel because we're not, we're too weak to do that. Yeah, like, we're too, they're we're angels. Yeah. Yeah, that humans are basically, they're too weak. It takes a very extraordinary human to be able to actually look at the face of an angel and not see a thousand eyeballs or something creepy like that. Like Laura, I feel like Laura Watson has like so much to say on this. She's like, no, this is totally your time to, to voice your concerns. No, the eyeball thing is the first time I've ever heard that. And I'm kind of disturbed, but, um, yeah, thanks for the nightmares, Archie. Right. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. And now I have a completely different view of this whole angel thing. Like now I'm like, Oh, very scared. I like a nice Catholic. They're like in a robe with some right. rings and very, you know, like attractive. Beautiful golden glow right, like of light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, exactly. I'll take that. Thanks. Um, and yes, uh, in the Bible, I know it, it, you're not supposed to look upon them and et cetera. Um, very much like the face of God. Right. So right. I find that disturbing. The pig thing is very weird. Okay. Um, the late, the late second book of Enoch, twenty one, or twenty one one, also referred to them as the quote, many eyed ones. Yeah. Are uh, any of those eyes red? They're referred to as wheels of fire, oh. fiery flame, and burning fire. The four eye-covered wheels, each composed of two nested wheels that move next to the winged cherubim beneath the throne of God. The wheels move with the cherubim because the spirit of cherubim is in them. That means absolutely nothing to me. But I'm picturing a roller coaster, basically. Pretty much. They're wheels upon wheels that are covered with eyeballs. What's I mean, with the fucking eyeballs, Archie? I'm sorry. What are you looking I don't at? Know. I don't know. But um, yeah, they're they see everything, and the only way to see everything is to be covered head to toe in eyeballs. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure someone will comment on that further. I mean, I desperately need them too because <laughs> I don't like any of this. I don't. I, it, Every time I see one of those Guardian Angel bumper stickers now, I'm going to have a very, very different take on it. (laughs) I mean... My other wheel is an anus. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even Catholic, and I literally want to be like... (laughs) (laughs) And it's a good time for the sign of the cross, just in case. I mean... (laughs) I actually... I prayed to Archangel Michael a lot, just to kind of protect me, protect my family. I know what I'm involved in. I know the kind of, like, shit that I research. I research a lot of demons. I investigate a lot of haunted places. So I am constantly asking Archangel Michael to protect me and my family. But I'm a little scared now because apparently now I'm going to be picturing Michael as this fucking, like, head-to-eyeball guy. A three-dimensional wheel of eyeballs. Yeah, Yeah, I know I'm making this so much better. (laughs) In my head, someone just said, that's not cool. (laughs) I don't know who did it. I don't know if it was my own subconscious. I don't know if there was somebody that was like, you need to circle back and get this shit back on track. But yeah. 
what I'm I'm looking at is Ophanium on Wikipedia. Okay. Listeners? Just, just for reference. O-P-H-A-N-I-M. I've never heard of that. Uh, Miss Irish Catholic, have you? No. It's like I said, we have a very nice, pleasant version of our of our angels that is presented to us. Isn't that so nice, though? Very <laughs> wholesome. No, I just the two eyeballs. Just I mean, just the, the two. two, right? That's just the two. Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Okay. Um, anyway, so this little girl's haunted by a pig with red eyes. Uh, just two red eyes. Probably, probably not an angel. <laughs> probably not. Um, also, uh, just going to throw it in there because it was a claim. Uh, a ceramic lion supposedly bit George, the father, on the calf. Oh. Where was the said lion? Just ceramic lions just, just hanging about? Uh, I believe it was on either side of the fireplace. It was like a decorative mm-hmm. thing. And one of them bit uh, him on the calf. Mm. I have no paranormal explanation for that. It's a lot of biblical biblical interpretation to be had there. A little bit. A little bit. So um, there were also odors in the house that came and went. Uh, there were sounds. The front door would slam shut in the middle of the night. I couldn't get the warm in the house for many days. That Those are all very common claims of paranormal activity. Um, when we were investigating the Phelpsage Hospital over Halloween, we smelled the urine in the basement. We also smelled blood in one of the operating rooms. So uh, it, it, to that end... Um, we weren't the only ones that smelled urine. Like, I wasn't the only one that smelled the urine in the basement. Um, The entire group did. So, but there wasn't any, like, urine in the basement. Like, like no one wet their pants. Like, there wasn't any, like... (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't just me. Like, I can see if, like, one person is just smelling it, then maybe that's just something, like, kind of fucking weird going on with you. But the whole group smelled it. So that is a little bit harder to explain. Um, Granted, now, Archie, Laura, did you and Rachel go down in the basement when you guys were there? We did. We did. I don't remember smelling urine, but... Did you see... Did you see mice poop? Because it's infested with mice. Yes, yes. Like, lots of places. So I could see having that kind of smell be there just because of the rodents, et cetera, right? And, like, maybe it wasn't... You know, it could have been just an area that had dried that they had been using. Maybe for whatever reason, like, even, like, walking... I mean... Let's put soaked into chemi- something. Yeah, let's put on our chemistry hats. Mm. Like, if you had walked across <laughs> some dried urine, maybe that, like, you know, kind of, like, put some sort of, like, aura or, like, aroma into the air. But this actually smelled like human urine, and we all smelled it. And I feel like mice pee isn't, like... I feel like it would have to be a fuck ton of mice pee. <laughs> or, like... <laughs> Five people to smell it. <laughs> yeah, I can see that, but again, it might just not might not just be mice that were there. I mean, that's the evidence that we saw. Other kind of rodents, I'm not sure. 
oh. could be there, right? Remember we did see that um, javelina outside? Yeah, that's true. So something a little bit larger could have... I mean, I'm not saying the Hapolita went in there, but something a little bit larger could be... I mean, it might have. ...wandering and hiding. Um, you okay. know, it's like when you walk down a stairwell, like in a parking garage, and, you you know, there's that... You always... <laughs> I swear it happens every time. You know, you always come through that waft of piss smell at some point towards the bottom, you know, especially if you're, go, you're you parked in a place like downtown where people go out drinking. Mm. Like, it... It's going to happen. And it's not wet, but it has clearly been a place that people have been relieving themselves with some frequency. Okay. All right. Okay. So then what about like the smell of blood? The only thing I could think of would be iron, you know, because blood really smells like iron. I'm not sure. It does. It's very metallic, copper kind of. And if there was metal with, uh, you know, some water erosion. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. So, yeah. Um, odors in the house came in once, claimed the Lutz family. Um, couldn't get warm in the house for many days. That could be any number of things. Um, the Lutz family says that they kept the fireplace burning day and night in a futile attempt to stay warm. And they found strange gelatinous drops on the carpet when they woke up in the morning. Also coming through the, the seeping through the cabinet doors. Almost like a, let's call it ectoplasm. Okay. That just sounds gross. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Archie, what is your um, what is your thought on gelatinous droplets on the carpet and seeping through like cabinet doors? Um. Well, I have a lot of thoughts. None of them helpful. <laughs> Welcome to history of a haunting. <laughs> I mean, poor craftsmanship of the cabinet doors. Um, <laughs> they shouldn't be very porous. <laughs> okay, but focus on the gelatinous part of like. So they're claiming it's ectoplasm. What is your what is your immediate, like, explanation of that? Like, me, I'm like, it's a fucking ghost. Slimer was trapped in the cabinet. And <laughs> that's really, like, that's that on that. But what do you, what do you think? I think at the current time, it defies scientific explanation. I mean, how okay. do you explain technology to someone who grew up in the Middle Ages? It's magic. It's witchcraft. I mean, it totally doesn't apply here, but I just had to put that out there. <laughs> so what I'm hearing you saying is that you think it's legit a ghost. Okay. <laughs> I think it's fucking disgusting and nothing I want to see happening in my own home. <laughs> or in any home I may visit or in the future. Or in any home. <laughs> <laughs> It looks like it's time to move. Is that what is that is? I mean, that's what it looks like. <laughs> okay, so Laura, what do you think? 
What do you like? What is your initial? The only thing I could think of that would even remotely explain that is if there was like a dead animal somewhere and was like decaying and like kind of melting down. Okay. You know, like. I mean, that's foul as fuck, but I get it. You, you know, know, like, like a fat, like fat dripping or something, you know? I, right, right. That's no, the only, right. like, thing I could think of as some sort of decay kind of coming down. Right. It's still, that's still gross, still time to move. Oh, yeah. Anything like that is going to follow the laws of gravity. Yeah, yeah, like it would fall down. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like it would have to be somewhere and if it's in rain, but it wouldn't come through a cabinet door. I mean, best explanation I could come up with. I don't. Yeah, like if it was dripping down somewhere. Yeah, it would still even fat would have like eventually dry. It wouldn't just keep dropping all the way. Well, and I think like that kind of explains the odors that they were smelling too. If it were like a dead animal, like maybe in a gutter. I don't know. I've never owned my own home. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> um, but maybe, like, do animals die in gutters? Like, is do the gutters... Animals can die under walls. They can get in your attic. They can... Yeah, they can... Uh, if they had a fireplace they were running all the time... I'm sorry. Uh, stop talking. Been... Shh. Stop talking. I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to know. Change the subject. <laughs> but the house was vacant, you said too. So um yeah, in vacant for, houses like that, they would you can easily get animal infestations, especially in places like chimneys, you know, anywhere that's that they can ingress and attics, yeah, you know. Okay. All right, cool. All right. Um, let's see what else they claimed, and then <laughs> let's see if we can debunk this. Um, so George Lutz, again, the father of the family, claimed that he mysteriously woke at 3.15 almost every day. Arch, tell him what 3.15 is. Oh, the witching hour. There we go. Um, about, this was also around the same time that the that DeFeo committed the murders. So he kind of fell back on this whole 3 o'clock, 3 a.m., 3.15, the witching hour, as to why he committed the murders. Um... One night, George Lutz said that he heard the children's beds slamming up and down on the floor above him, but he was unable to do anything because he was immobilized by an, in bed by an unseen force. Now, this is easily, like, sleep paralysis is a legitimate thing. Mm-hmm. I think that we can all agree that a number of psychotherapists, therapists, psychologists have, have sleep paralysis is a legitimate thing. Now, what causes it, I suppose, is up for debate. But it is an actual thing that happens to people. So maybe maybe he was suffering from sleep paralysis and just, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, I mean, if that's the case, that he was trapped in his bed by sleep paralysis, he was also hearing those noises caused by the same phenomena. Do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can always think about night terrors too. Yeah. No. Again, these people are under what seems like a lot of stress. Mm -hmm. You know, those kind of things can bring on nightmares. You even have to be stressed to suffer from night terrors. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. A friend of mine, um, he uh, just got married, just had a baby, 
just was able to like move into a new place. Like you know, everything's coming up roses, but he's still night terrors every single night. Like it doesn't, you know. Yeah, it doesn't exactly just go away. It doesn't, no, it really doesn't. So maybe he was suffering from night terrors in that particular instance. Um, he did go on to say later on in his life, George Lutz, that I just didn't want to leave the house. We would invite people over instead of going to see them. There came a point where when we would invite people over to see whether we were crazy or not. And I feel like I would do that too. Like if shit was going on in my house, I'd be like, Archie, Laura, you guys need to come over and I need to like, am I wrong? Do you see the ooze coming out of my cupboard? (laughs) Laura, could you go up on the roof and see if there's a dead animal? Like somebody help me here. Why I have to be the one to go up there. (laughs) I mean, Archie's not going to do it. Are you kidding? This is true. I mean, he'd hold a light for you. Um, So like that part I get, um, because when our friends sat in the kitchen, they could hear people walking around upstairs after the kids had been put into bed. We'd all go upstairs and find the kids fast asleep. There was no way it was the kids. And when your friends confirm that for you, you almost want to break down and say out loud, I'm not crazy. They hear it too. I can't imagine the the relief that that must be to to yeah. to think to have you and and Archie validate what my family and I are experiencing, and, and you guys are like, uh, "Why is there a herd of elephants upstairs?" I don't know. Let's all go take a look. Oh, Koi's asleep all by himself. Like I I feel like that would be probably pretty magnanimous to. Oh you know, yeah, yeah. No. It'd almost be a relief, but then also not a relief, right? Yeah, right. Because then it's actually real. Yeah. Thank you so much for experiencing it, but fuck you. Couldn't you lie? <laughs> um, he said that is such an emotional moment when somebody else confirms for you what you're hearing and that it's not just you hearing it, that it's not just your imagination. So the final night the Lutz family spent in the house was, in George's words, the most prolific reason not to stay there anymore. So he goes on to say that I was lying in bed and everybody else was asleep and Kathy lifts up off the bed and starts to slide away from the bed and away from me. I feel something get in the bed with us. No, fuck you. No. I'm unable to move. Again, maybe sleep paralysis. Um, I hear the kids' beds continually slamming up and down on the floor and being dragged. We then heard these pigeons on the air conditioner top overhead from the master bathroom. They're fluttering and squawking all night long. And yet the next morning, there are no pigeons there or any nest or anything like that. So that's kind of weird. Like you hear bird, like, Hmm. I don't know. I think that's kind of weird. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. It was a little bit odd, but again, I mean, who knows? It's explainable. I, I, yeah. Yeah. Was it really birds? I mean, is it like absolute positive it's birds? Could have been a different kind of animal. No. It's coming through the air conditioning. I mean, it's distorted. Remind me to ask my builder where my air conditioning unit is going to be placed. Hold on. Aaron, it's fine. I'm going to write this one down. Where is AC unit? Okay. 
Um, he also said the lights flickered. We brought the dog to stay the night right by the bedroom. We tied him right to the doorknob and he's up going in circles and throwing up all night, which by the way, um, there's more sad shit about this dog. The dog. Oh no. Does the dog live? The dog lives. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, but so we brought the dog up to stay right by the bedroom. We tied him to the right doorknob with his leash and he's up going in circles and throwing up all night, which just that in and of itself makes me want to like hug all my dogs. <sighs> Apparently at one point the dog, the dog tried to run out of the house, but because they had the dog leashed and like tied to various like furniture. So the dog wouldn't run away. The dog jumped over an out open window. Bless you. You guys didn't hear that because Archie was kind enough to mute himself. <laughs> I try. <laughs> but um, I know it's different recording in person. I mean, Archie's just generally like, pause, and then massive sneeze. <laughs> and then, okay, I'll just edit that out. Um <laughs> He tried to jump out of a window, the dog, because whatever was going on in the house terrified it so much that he jumped out of a window that he couldn't hit the ground. And so he's basically hanging by his collar and his leash. Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, To the point where the father had to go run out and cut the leash to free the dog so the dog would quit basically strangling itself to death um which to me personally is the most horrifying part of this entire story agreed i'm like i don't like this part yeah i don't even i mean like the mass murder is fine and uh but the dog (laughs) the red-eyed pig is uh, fine it's all explainable uh the dog no stop i can swallow the yeah the murder just i mean i'll hurt the animals god no um (laughs) Red-eyed pigs, whatever. Who doesn't have them? (laughs) Um, (laughs) The boys had actually... So it's a three-story house, and I guess the kids' rooms were, like, up on the third floor, and then the parents' master bedroom was on the second, and then, like, you know, the main house on the first floor. So he said that the boys came down in the morning absolutely frightened. They were unable to get down to me, and I was unable to get up to them. The little girl, Missy, came in and just asked, what was that all about? All casual. I mean, she's got a red-eyed pig, Angel, for a friend. Like, I mean, what's a little bed thumping in the middle of the night? Though his wife had no memory of it at all. Um, the the day that we spent trying to get a hold, that next day they spent trying to get a hold of Father Ray, the guy that had come to bless the house. But they actually weren't so, so successful because the line kept cutting off or was full of static when they would try to call him, which is pretty interesting. So they fucking jumped, shipped, shipped, no, jumped, ship. God, words are hard. They jumped, ship, and they all took off in the middle of the night, 28 days after they bought the house. They went to um, her mother's house where they stayed for the next part of my story. So they still owned the home. And I guess they were still making mortgage payments. They left it and they left everything like in it. They left their furniture, their clothes. They just basically, 
you know, took a, a few changes of clothes and um, toothbrush. I mean, like, that's it. And they went to her mother's house. But from everything that I've read, they still kept the house for about almost a year making payments on it. So this is where Ed and Lorraine Warren, that was my ring hitting the table. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I I gesture when I talk. So my ring was like, hit the desk. Um, Oh, sorry. And then I just apologize to my ring. Um, So this is where Ed and Lorraine Warren get involved. And now, Laura, do you know who they are? I do not. Okay. So you've heard, have you heard of the Conjuring movies? Mm-hmm. Okay. So the Conjuring movies are based on Ed and Lorraine Warren. Um, they were real people and they were um, paranormal investigators. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, they investigated some of the most famous uh, haunted locations, including the Amityville House, um, the Conjuring House, uh, the Enfield Poltergeist, Annabelle the Doll. Um, have you heard of those different things? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So Ed and Lorraine Warren were um, kind of central to these various storylines. And in 1976, they were invited to investigate this Amityville house. So after fleeing the home, George and Kathy Lutz, with the assistance of Channel 5 news assistant Laura DiDio, they contacted Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were a husband and wife team of self-proclaimed demonologists. Now, Lorraine Warren was a clairvoyant, and um, a clairvoyant is somebody that can see see ghosts. Um, a clear audience is, is somebody that can hear spirits. Um, but Lorraine was a clairvoyant, so she could see and hear them. So I, from all of my studies, a clairvoyant is somebody who is who can see, hear, and, you know, they're like the most powerful. Clairaudient is the next level where they can actually hear them. So apparently the Warrens first entered the property on February 24th, 1976, Lorraine Warren described, quote, an overwhelming sense of sadness and depression throughout the entire home. Not a fucking shock. I mean. Right. Not a super heavy place. I mean, no, it's not. Um, after entering the basement, her husband, Ed, felt a powerful inhuman presence. It was as if I was standing underneath a waterfall, Ed recalls in a later interview. And the pressure was driving me down to the floor. And I commanded, in the name of Jesus Christ, what was there to reveal its identity. I understood right at that point that we were dealing, what we were dealing with was no ghost. It was no ordinary haunted house. So from all of my research and all of the episodes that Archie and I have done, we've covered a couple of exorcisms, Arch, and that's like the key to, ident- like the key to, undoing any sort of demonic possession of a home is if you can identify the demonic entity in it and you can get them to say their name, you've got them kind of by the hell fireballs. Um, so the fact that they were having trouble trying to get whatever this was to identify itself was sort of a major red flag to Ed and Lorraine Warren. 
So after they continued their initial investigation, the Warrens put together a group of professional psychics to assist them in their findings. And here is where I tend to break off in my belief of paranormal activity in this house. And I kind of lend a little bit more toward your skepticism, Laura, and Archie, your kind of like, mm, I need a little pessimism. <laughs> yeah. So what they ended up doing was something that ended up becoming called the seance sleepover. Oh, Lord. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Wherein um, they basically conducted an overnight seance in the house. Um, they put together a group of psychics to assist them in their findings. They also had like a local news team that consisted of Marvin Scott, Steve Petropolis, and Laura Dio, who were all um, either on on-camera reporters, uh, you know, PAs, that kind of thing, to cover the investigation on March 6, 1976. So the Warrens um, brought in one of their friends, a psychic named Mary Pascarella. She considers herself a time walker. So I don't know, like the minute I heard that, I was like, like Dr. Who? yeah um but she is a a time walker who she describes as a person who is able to sense and sometimes visualize past events in a particular location um she claims that the house at 112 ocean avenue was no exception she says i began to say my prayers and as i was saying the our father I looked out of the door, and as I was saying the Our Father, there was a group of figures saying the Our Father backward, which I don't love that idea. I, I don't. I don't love that idea, that idea at, at, at all. Is and I'm like not even to, Catholic. Is it like listening to your records backwards? Kinda, yeah. <laughs> like I'm not like like I don't know if they were saying like the words backwards, like let in like alphabetically backwards or if they were just saying like our our father who art in heaven but then the words backwards i don't it's not clear like how they were saying it backwards but either way i don't love it a wee bit creepy Mm. for sure it seems like it'd be a really good test for catholics to see if they're drunk right (laughs) can you say the our father backwards Okay, well, I mean, you're, you're not, Laura, you're not drunk and you're Catholic. Can you say it backwards sober? I can barely say it forwards. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to give an example. <laughs> Our Father who art in heaven, it's like saying, no, I can't do that. Uh, moving <laughs> on. Um, so apparently, Mary was not the only one who experienced strange events that night. Channel 5 cameraman Steve Petropolis reportedly suffered a rash of heart palpitations and shortness of breath while climbing the staircase. Now, I mean, that could easily be explained by him being super out of shape. Right. <laughs> I'm all same, dude. <laughs> right? Right. Also, uh, Laura, you and your girlfriend, you bitches are going hiking. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Listen. Yeah. No. It's good for you. It's good for you, but then also then you're like immortalized forever as having a rash of heart palpitations (laughs) in a paranormal podcast. (laughs) I will report back about how bad my heart palpitations were. I I really hope you do. (laughs) 
Um, so the Warrens say they also felt a cold spot on the staircase, a detail that George Lutz, Lutch, what's his name? Lutz has since said he also experienced, which is a, a common occurrence. Okay. I mean, sure. I'm, I'm not willing. That's a common occurrence in a lot of homes that are haunted. I think in the Sally house, that was another one, Arch, right? Yeah. Cold spots. Yeah. So another psychic by the name of Alberta Riley made similar, similar claims during the seance. It's upstairs in the bedroom. What's here makes your heart speed up. My heart is pounding. I mean, I've yet to be in a haunted location where I have felt this scared. I'm sure that's going to happen, but I, I, I can't, I can't relate. Um, she goes on to say, that whatever is here in my estimate most definitely is of a negative nature. It has nothing to do with anyone who had once walked the earth in human form. It is right from the bowels of the earth. Lorraine Warren says, whatever is here, it is able to move around at will. It doesn't have to stay here, but I think it's a resting place. So the Warrens felt the house could only be saved through a cleansing performed by an Anglican exorcist or a Roman Catholic priest. Archie's over it, and there he went. <laughs> oh, was that me, Larry? That was you out of here. Oh. <laughs> That's the priest on the way. He's <laughs> like, I got this. I got it. I'm coming. I'll be right there. I'll be right there. Uh, George and Kathy Lutz say they were not willing to take on this responsibility of having the home exercised. They'd be putting their life in jeopardy. How can you go and ask somebody to do that for a house? Which is fucking fair. How can you? You can't. Like, it's a house. As much as I love my new house, if I found that it were, like, haunted because it was built on Indian burial ground, I'd be like, mm, well, I guess I'm just fucking out that money. There are things uh, Gasoline and matches as well. So I mean, burn that thing down. <laughs> I've got three rambunctious dogs and it's a natural gas neighborhood. I mean, shit happens. So the Warrens um, decided that, I mean, if the Lutzes didn't want anything to do with it, they were just going to kind of part ways with it. So that George and Kathy, after like... Uh, owning the house for however long. I mean, granted, they only lived there for 28 days, but they actually were still making mortgage payments and what have you for several months. They decided they couldn't risk moving their children back into the home. They returned the property to Columbia Savings and Loan on August 30th, 1976. So apparently, although George Lutz is reluctant to explain the full details of that night that they moved out, he once said that, quote, the hardest thing for those people who experience a haunting is the loss of being able to communicate with anyone else about it. It's not talked about, it's not understood. And when it happens to you, you become an alien to everyone else. And I feel like that's kind of true. I feel like there's this stigma of, um, well, there was more to it or, well, you know, maybe she just had a really bad dream or maybe she was uglier than you thought she was, or maybe, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe there was a dead animal in, in the gutter and it was leaking like, <laughs> decomposition fluid into your cupboards or whatever. So like, I guess I, I, I guess I can kind of relate to that in that I can not relate to it, but I can empathize with what that must feel like to 
know that you're experiencing something that people are not going to fucking believe happened. Um, so the Lutz's entire account was later dismissed as a fabrication by a paranormal investigator um, who was the late Dr. Stephen Kaplan. So ultimately, this man said that George's stories of haunting were, quote, too wide ranging and probably stemmed from a pre-existing obsession with the paranormal. So here's where the whole thing kind of like, on the one hand, you can kind of empathize with the family, but on the other hand, you're like, mm, it sounds like a, a bunch of bullshit. But then on the third hand, you're like, well, a horrible murder did happen there. So maybe there is some residual shit. Like, I mean, it's a very, it's a very interesting story for, to me. Um, so less than two months later, after they like uh, voluntarily surrendered the house, basically, the Lutzes held a press conference with William Weber. Now, I asked you guys to remember that name in the beginning because that's Ronald DeFeo's defense attorney. And they held a press conference with this man. And uh, <laughs> this led to accusations that they had planned a hoax even before moving in. So apparently this attorney, this defense attorney, wanted to play up the idea that evil spirits were in the house, or at least that DeFeo thought that they were, in an attempt to have DeFeo declared guilty but insane, thereby lessening his sentence. So, in a later legal dispute, Weber claimed that he and George Lutz concocted the whole story over many bottles of wine, but believers point out that he had an incentive to trash the Lutz family, since they were actually suing each other. This is where it gets into this ridiculous, like, myriad and, like, web of lawsuits that kind of take over the story from here. Um, in a contract for a book proposal that George Lutz and this defense attorney, William Weber, had considered, Weber wanted Lutz to agree to take a lie detector test, something that... I think we can all agree uh, the Lutz family would not have done if they had known it was a hoax. Like why, if you, if you knew you were perpetrating this lie, like why would you willingly, like why would you take a lie detector test? Um, in the end, George and Kathy Lutz did take a lie detector test from a nationally recognized firm and they both passed the lie detector tests. Which is interesting, but they're not unbeatable, especially, what are we talking, the 70s? They're not, you're right. They're not, like, they're not unbeatable. And they're not, actually, I don't even think today, they're still, I don't even think that lie detector tests are admissible in court, like, in a court case. Yeah, I don't think so either, so. Yeah. Um, I still think it's worth noting, um, because, I mean, lie detector tests they, they look at your heart rate. They look at, like, they look at, like, physiological changes in a person when they're telling a lie. So I think it's interesting that they both pass them because I think it takes a very skilled um, sociopath, really, to be able to beat a lie detector. I agree with that, too. But, I mean, if these people were really in cahoots, 
you know, with a sure. defense attorney to create this. I mean, we're talking about people who really are kind of of that caliber, like con people. Right. You know, they're, they're up for that. Right. But do you think that, like, they would have to have a history of it? Or do you think that, like, their first, I mean, let's, like, their first shot out of the gate, they would be able to do it? Like, if this is their first, like, con. I just don't see what would be the motivation, to be honest, I, for them to, to all of us, they don't know that family, right? Unless they were getting money, I know that that family was wealthy, like, on the side or something. Um I just don't see why you would go through all of this, like buy the house, right? make this big scene, have all these people know, be ostracized in your community. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. A lot of work for minimal payout. Exactly. Like unless it was, unless you're getting a lot of money or something, I don't know. I just don't see the motivation for them to do that. And they put their children through all of this. Mm-hmm. which I'm going to, I'm going to get to the kids and I like the effect on it, on the kids here in just a second. Um, so George Lutz apparently contacted the Stephen Kaplan who had mentioned just a minute ago had actually ended up kind of debunk- debunking the whole entire thing. He actually had contacted this man personally, um, but the two had a rapid falling out. The falling out was actually so severe that this Stephen Kaplan spent the next 20 years of his career debunking the Amityville story. So that's kind of a vendetta, I think. Like, you're going to spend the next 20 years of your career debunking this? Why is it, for number one, why is it taking you 20 years? Is there is there enough there that you have to, like, 20 years? And how do you stay that mad for that long? I mean, Kinda, I've yeah. had some ex-girlfriends that were super pissed, but I think after 20 years, they're probably mostly over it. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and, and to spend mostly. most of their career trying to debunk shit, like... Yeah, like, well, it, the Amityville House, though, I mean, that's kind of a career maker, mm-hmm. you know, in a way. It's such mm-hmm. a prolific and well-known crime Yeah, that, you know, everything that, that surrounds it is so you know, hyped up and notorious and, you know, you're, you're getting a lot of fame and traction just because of what you're studying. That's true. Arch, what are your thoughts on this guy spending 20 years trying to debunk this, these claims? That's a long time. A long time. I know. For- and like, did he do anything else in the 20 years or just, it's just like, like, Every fucking day is solid for 20 years. Like, I have so many questions. (laughs) Oh, God. Or did he spend, like, a day or two for 20 years? That's, there's a difference. I don't know. I need to, I need to. Well, I mean, he's, if, if anything, he's playing the long con, that's a hell of a fucking long con Mm -hmm. to play. It's a commitment. It is. It's a commitment. And it's also putting your reputation on the line if you're going to go after somebody. Like Laura said, this is a this is a big, big deal. The Amityville House is like a career maker. Well, tons of movies, lots mm-hmm. of speculation. Mm-hmm. Always being about. Yeah. Um, 
So apparently after he contacted the Stephen Kaplan and they had this falling out, Kaplan had this 20-year vendetta, um, they then met Jay Anson. And Jay Anson is the man that wrote the book, The Amityville Horror, that the movies were based on, that the James Brolin and um, Margot Kidder were in, and then Ryan Reynolds, who, God love me some Ryan Reynolds. Anything he does is liter- is legit, and obviously this is a true story because Ryan Reynolds was in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan doesn't lie. He doesn't. Deadpool <laughs> is really real. Um, <laughs> so they met him, and um, they turned over to him a series of tape recordings that they had made describing the ghostly events. So Anson produced the book from these recordings and suggested in the books afterward that he had attempted to verify the alleged facts. Critics like Kaplan, again, scrutinized every line in the book and found countless flaws. So here's something interesting. Remember when I told you guys that um, George Lutz said that they had found pig hoofs in the snow leading from Mm -hmm. the house? Well, I guess weather reports revealed no snow had actually fallen in Amityville on the day George claimed to have seen Jody's huge cloven tracks in their snow-filled yard and that no storm had occurred on the day they fled the place. So if you remember, I mean, in the movie, it, they, they fled on a like dark and stormy night, but apparently that wasn't accurate either. Not so, so the, stormy. Right. The book had also stated that the front door had been blown off its hinges, but hi, Arch, what are we doing? Scowling. Why? (laughs) Is this whole thing bullshit? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to be really mad if this whole thing is bullshit. (laughs) Well, I mean, isn't that kind of like what we're like discussing? So there were weather reports that no snow had fallen. There was no storm on the night that they had fled the house. Um, the book stated, now remember this, the book stated that the front door had been blown off its hinges, but the home's new owner went on TV to show that the door was actually in perfect shape, which, okay, you could have repaired it and shown the media a perfect door. Um, it's not like they, like the day they moved in, they were like, look, this door, now we have to replace it. And we got so much money off because the door is blown off its hinges. I mean, there's a, there's so many fucking facets. Um, there was also uh, this mysterious red room that um, was under the stairs that they had found in the movies, which was apparently something that they discovered within days of moving into the house. Um, it was painted red, and um, they felt that it was some sort of like room for satanic rituals or what have you. That's how the book depicted it, but previous owners of the home were like, actually, it's just a closet under the stairs. Like, we just used it for storage. It wasn't anything. So, that kind of thing. So now, two of George Lutz's three stepchildren, so Kathy's children, have gone on to confirm several of the events once they were grown. Keep in mind, they were, the girl was seven. The two boys were, I think, uh, nine and ten years old. Chris and Daniel are the boys. They have stated the following. While the daughter, Missy, has largely avoided the entire experience and subject altogether. So the little girl who had the pet demonic pig. Um, So Chris, Chris has changed his name to Christopher Quarantino, which was his birth father's name. They all went by the last name of Lutz, but he changed his name back to his birth father's name. 
He says that the time that he spent in that house defined his life. He was seven years old when he and his family moved into the 4,000 square foot Dutch colonial home on Ocean Avenue in Long Island in 1975. Now he's 43 years old and he's still creeped out. He says that uh, Chris, here it is, Arch, a Phoenix resident now, who conducted this interview at the Hotel San Carlos. Oh, Lord. (laughs) Um, He changed his last name in 1989 from Lutz back to the name of his birth farter. Farter? What? Farter. (laughs) You said fart. (laughs) Father. He is actually disgusted by the Amityville horror legend, uh, which he estimates has generated about half a billion dollars in the past 25 years. From the first book in 1977 by the late Jay Anson, who billed the family's experience as a true story, the retelling of America's best-known haunted house story in print and at the movies has distorted and fictionalized events nearly beyond any semblance of truth, according to this child, now grown. However, after the Lutz family famously fled the home in a rush and moved across the country to San Diego... Quarantino and his siblings took a lot of flack from other kids. Your mother's a liar, Quarantino recalls one kid saying at his face at school. His mother, Kathy Lutz, told him to avoid reading the book or seeing the subsequent movie starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder, so he didn't not for, and he didn't for a long time. She wanted me to grow up and be a normal kid. That would have been my heart's desire. I never wanted to talk about it, but my privacy had already been breached. Yeah, that's, I mean, to say the fucking least. Um... The article went on to say Quarantino has kept a relatively low profile most of his life, but this isn't the first time he's come out with concerns. Most of his media time has occurred since 2005 when the remake of the original film was getting promoted with Ryan Reynolds. One headline in Long Island's Newsday that year stated that he debunks much of the legend. True, but he doesn't debunk everything. Quarantino remains convinced that an evil presence stalked the family in the Amityville home. A deeply religious man who once considered becoming a Christian pastor, Quarantino believes his stepfather, George Lutz, invited demonic forces into the home through his dabbling in the occult. So here comes back this claim that the dad was into some otherworldly shit that he didn't know how to control. Mm-hmm. Archie, you and I hate the Ouija board users. So he said that he lived in the home when he was seven and he remembers the fear he felt there. His parents had been informed by a real estate agent before they moved into the house in 1975 that a ghastly mass murder had occurred there. About a year earlier, a 23-year-old man had shot to death his parents and four siblings. Um, he also remembers standing in the basement for the first time with his parents asking where the bodies were. Asking the real estate agent where the bodies were. Once he and his older brother, Daniel, noticed that one of the signature quarter circle windows on the second floor kept opening, even after they latched it several times, um, that's when they started thinking that something was going on in the house. The family dog seemed to sense malevolence from day one and tried to jump over a fence while still leashed. His dad had to rescue the spasming animal as it hung from its neck. 
I hate that. That's like the whole most horrible part of the whole entire story. <laughs> then one night, a dark human-like figure appeared in, the, in his bedroom doorway. He could see what seemed like the outline of a head and a body. He was as large as a man, as definite as a shadow, but not against the wall. I saw no feet, and it petrified me. I remember being so scared that I wanted to cry out, Mommy, but I knew that Mommy was too far away to get to me before it did. He says the shape advanced toward his bed and faded away, leaving a lingering stench. He's positive this was no dream. So basically the interview goes on with um, the perpetual argument of whether or not the, the, the paranormal activity was a hoax or if it wasn't a hoax, which parts of it were true, which weren't true. Um, uh, the the kid ends up thinking, I mean, that he should be considered an authority on the subject. And quite honestly, I, I mean, he, I feel like he should be. Um, because what child is going to perpetuate their parents, if it was a hoax, like, what child is going to perpetuate their parents just to save face? Like, he was seven. You know what I mean? Plus, it doesn't seem like it's done him any favors in his life. So you would think that he would either almost want to be like, no, it never happened. I don't know what you're talking about. Kind of writing as opposed to saying no, that, you know, it was blown out of proportion, but really there was some very scary stuff that happened. Right. It was just, which is essentially what he's saying. It sounds like a whole bunch of hooey. It sounds like the whole thing is bullshit, all made up to get some money. And I, I just, I don't, I mean, now I'm frustrated by this whole story. <laughs> Here's where, you know, Arch, you might feel a little vindicated in that thought. So he feels this Chris, like one of the younger sons, feels that he should be considered an authority on the subject. But he hasn't proved very savvy when it comes to public relations or dealing with the movie studio types. He's watched filmmakers and authors rake in the cash over the past two decades, sometimes depicting or mentioning him as if they really knew something about him. No matter how hard he's tried, he's been unable to steer the narrative or the profits his way. Trapped in an American ghost story of his stepfather's making, Quarantino learned he couldn't beat them or join them. He's only a fictional character to Hollywood. He estimates that his parents have earned four hundred dollars to $450,000 over their lifetimes because of the Amityville horror. After the release of the book, the, Lutz, the Lutzes, wow. <laughs> the Lutzes moved to San Diego and then to Phoenix. Yay. So glad we're a part of this. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, his parents divorced in 1988. The next year, Christopher, after incessant teasing by fellow soldiers, he served in the Army's 10th Mountain Division in the First Gulf War. He officially changed his last name from Lutz back to Quarantino. After that, I never wanted anybody to know who I was. Um, he said that he would ask his stepdad about the ridiculous things in the 1979 film and its sequels, and George would always tell him that the movies were full of shit, but that Anson's book was the authoritative. Quarantino read the book for the first time in 1999 before he was interviewed for a History Channel special on the Amityville Horror. He was flabbergasted by the nonsense even in Anson's work. Now I'm seeing why the public perceives this as a hoax. What I'm reading to me is bullshit. 
He went public in the early 2000s writing online that not only had George apparently lied about parts of the tale, but that the true parts came about because of his stepfather's dabbling in the occult. Quarantino believes that his stepdad, whose experience with the occult was limited to a few books that he'd read, intentionally repeated the names of demons during meditation sessions, calling malevolent forces to the home. That explains why the Lutzes reported the supernatural events that followed them after they left Amityville, and why no one living in the home afterward subsequently reported any problems, which that makes a hell of a lot of sense to me. Yeah. What's your thought, Laura? I think, well, I don't know about summoning demons, but his version seems a little bit more realistic than the stories and the movies and the, you know, the big yeah. blown up Hollywood version. Um, that's probably all I can say about that. I don't know. I don't know how much I believe that some man who read one like book is going to be able to summon demons all of a sudden, but Hey, I don't know what the process for summoning demons personally. <laughs> so I can't like really speak truth to that, but thank God. <laughs> right. I haven't done this yet. I mean, the night's young. The but, night is young. But we'll see. Um, no, I, I, th- I yeah. do think that his version is a bit more realistic. Yeah. No. So, whatever the cause, the bad feelings festered in the family. George and his stepsons fought over the rights to use the family's images in later entertainment projects. Apparently, legal disputes plagued this family for the rest of their lives, um, even after George and Kathy divorced. Um, Whatever the cause, um, in 2003, Quarantino, Arch, Laura, sorry, hoping to cash in from the online interest in the legend. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, this son, hoping to cash in from online interest, uh, tried to register register the domain of AmityvilleHorror.com. But George, the stepfather, uh, who had had the phrase Amityville Horror trademarked the year before, sued him. At this point, we get into like this fucking like confluence of lawsuits between the family and George or what's his name not George uh Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s attorney and I mean it's ridiculous so so this the 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 stepdad sues the one son um he then countersues um yeah I just don't even I can't um, noting that the trademark uh, said the brand name concerned a series of nonfiction books, even though George had admitted publicly that at least parts of the series were bogus. So they ultimately settled, um, and then the son turned over the domain name. Around the same time, uh, the son found out that the dad was working on a deal for a movie in which the son, Christopher, came back to the home years later, became possessed, and killed his father. So he then sued again because that, like, idea of his character offended him. Oh, my God. like, you can't do that. So apparently when MGM had obtained the rights to use, or Anson's rights to use the family's story, announced plans to do the 2005 remake with Ryan Reynolds. George lost financing for his own film project. In 2005, 
in the 2005 version, George, the father, is the one who gets possessed and tries to kill his family while standing on the dock of the lake in a very tight white wet t-shirt looking so <laughs> And this is the version that you believe, yes? I'm sure this is what happened. <laughs> we'll post a picture of that on our social media. <laughs> oh, the thirst is real. It's real. Um, so the child, karma came back and bit him on the ass, which... It, Talking about the dad and like how they ended up portraying him in the movie. Um, again, the father, the real life father, sued the studio MGM, which, by the way, good luck, um, which happened to be settled. He did settle it with the studio. George and Kathy Lutz uh, actually did go to their graves without recanting the idea that they had experienced the supernatural events. So they still, they died claiming this shit happened. You kind of got to give them credit because if I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to be like, all right, it might have been a bunch of bullshit, but look at all the money I got from it. <laughs> at that point, like, what, it, what, like, what, what is there to lose? You're, it's your fucking deathbed, right? Oh, right. Somebody say right. Oh, right. There's plenty to lose. If you recount, if you recount shit on your deathbed, oh, that still holds up in court. <laughs> But that's Koi's problem, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's a legacy issue at that point. Oh, man. Anyway. Harsh. I mean, it's kind of harsh. So the the other son, Daniel, um, he was 10 at the time. And he insists that he was menaced by spirits of the family's own. And he says that the family stay there for the 28 days ruined his life. He also blames the evil presence on the stepfather, George, whose occult dabblings opened a gateway to dark forces that he couldn't control. Um, This particular child, uh, he is a troubled individual. Still to this day, he left home at the age of 15, spending some time living homeless in America's Southwest. So now as a grown man, he's actually estranged from his wife and two grown-up children. He now lives in Queens, New York, where he works as a stonemason. His side of the story would probably have remained secret had a friend not contacted him, um, a young filmmaker by the name of Eric Walter, who has set up a website devoted to the Amityville saga. So this friend persuaded the reclusive Lutz to speak in a new documentary, My Amityville Horror. And given how much he says he loathed his late stepfather, who, again, by all accounts, was a domineering ex-Marine, he would beat them with a wooden spoon. Um, people oh, tend wooden spoons. Yeah. <laughs> I know those. Yeah, you talk about them in the Krampus episode, actually. You're like, oh, wooden switches. Yeah, yeah. I've had friends that were <laughs> told to pick their own switches, and they would pick the smaller ones, thinking it wouldn't hurt as much. Um <laughs> Big mistake. Yeah, big mistake. That's what Archie was like, no, that didn't end up working out. Uh, <laughs> he says that um, this this other son says that his side of the story probably would have remained a secret had this friend not contacted him. Um, he really did loathe his stepfather. He was a domineering ex-Marine 
beat them with wooden spoons. Um, people might expect him to want to trash George Lutz's tale of demonic possession, but this particular child insists that it was substantially true, even down to being levitated in his bed and seeing a demonic figure in his little sister's bedroom. I just wanted somebody to believe me. It has been my dream my whole life. Um, thinking about it, uh, he looks tortured and his eyes welled up with tears, which I know doesn't pull on Archie's heartstrings, but it does on mine. Archie's like, meh, whatever. The kid recalls seeing his stepfather's bookshelves lined with titles on Satanism and magic. He even claimed he saw George Lutz move a spanner telekinetically in his garage before the family ever moved to Amityville. So he goes on to say that George's beliefs and practices triggered what was going on in the house. It was like a magic trick had gone bad that you couldn't shut off. So... Daniel Lutz, whose real father had died, said he started feeling uneasy in the Amityville house within two hours of moving in. Taking a box upstairs to their playroom, he found it swarming with flies. He swatted at a hundred, but after fetching his mother, discovered the dead flies had all gone. That's when my confusion started. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Um, he said he still dreams of the family dog going ballistic, almost choking itself to death with its lead, trying to jump out of its outdoor pen by the nearby garage, um, at, well, by the garage after the garage door took on a life of its own. So that particular story about the dog trying to hang itself, get away from this house, seems to be consistent through like all, like all the tales, everybody's tales. Um, the entire family was standing there watching that garage door slam up and down, slam up and down. He also recalled how he and his stepfather were returning from shutting the garage door when they looked up at his five-year-old sister's bedroom window and saw what Daniel described as a cartoon character of an angry pig with wolf-like teeth and laser beam red eyes. He said he ran up to the room and discovered an empty rocking chair rocking back and forth. On another occasion, his mother was treating his injured hand after a window had mysteriously crashed down on it. Daniel described an invisible spirit entering the kitchen, knocking over a knife and sitting at the table, making an impression in the padded final seat. Some, <laughs> so the story continues that um, some people clearly sympathize with his Daniel Lutz's view of his stepfather as a man who dabbled in the occult and paid the price. Others wonder whether his stories of supernatural torment hide a more conventional tale of domestic abuse, which George Lutz was known for beating his kids and his wife. This story, I, like, I swear to God, like, it's one of the most famous paranormal and true crime tales. And that's why I was like, let's, you know what, let's just fucking deep dive into it. Um, Bobby Sylvester, who happens to be a cousin of the family, said there was always something off-putting about George, the father. Um, and that the family had to tread very lightly around him. He said, quote, as a child, you realize there was something not right about this man, something not good. Uh, that's entirely possible, but maybe he's also trying to like build on the whole, he was into Satanism kind of thing. Um, for the Amityville skeptics, Lutz's passion for the occult may be the solution they are looking for, one that even explains why the couple managed to pass a lie detector test. For if the domineering head of the household already believed in telekinesis 
and the powers of darkness before they moved into a house that had just been the scene of a mass murder is not stretching credulity to assume that he and his family might be susceptible to supernatural explanations for mundane occurrences. I agree with that. There's a lot of power suggestion that could have been going on there. And especially if there's abuse and, you know, it's like bad things happen to bad people kind of thing. Do you agree, Arch? I definitely agree. Yeah, I agree too. Um, It's what psychologists call, like Laura just said, the power of suggestion. Alternatively, Daniel Lutz could just be recalling exactly what happened. Certainly Daniel, who has since declined all approaches for further interviews and has no plans to make any financial gain out of any of this. Um, Eric Walter, his friend, the new documentary's director, is a skeptic, but added that he doesn't believe that a family would abandon everything and flee unless they were genuinely scared. That I that is another part of me that I'm like, you know what? That's kind of right. Like on the promise of a bunch of money, am I going to pick up my family and fucking bail in the middle of the night with just clothes on our back? On the promise of money, mm, I wouldn't do that. If Eric was right. Well, maybe, but like if you won the lottery, would you really care about the stuff that you have or some, you know, kind of that? Sure, but but they didn't have any of that at the time when they left. It was like, you bail the house and then we're going to write a book about all the scary stuff that happened in here. What if there's too many what ifs in that scenario to just be like, you know what? You're right. What if we did this? Otherwise, Arch, my family would have bounced on this goddamn joint Months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I'm moving in. (laughs) Plus, you know, when you have kids, too, the sentimentality that they have, I mean, try to throw away your kid's Happy Meal toy from a year ago in front of them and see how (laughs) how easy it is to get it out of their hands. That's true. They don't want to give up their stuff, you know, whether it's from the 70s or now. It's just... Right. So, so like, what what would... I mean, yeah, like from the 70s or even now or, you know, it would have to be something significant to drive me out of this house with just the clothes on our back. You know, I hope I take my purse because all my fucking credit cards are in it and I don't have much gas to get very far from this goddamn crazy house. I don't know. I, I just feel like that, that sentence kind of resonated with me. Um, so <clears throat> he, this Eric Walter, this documentary documentarian, is that the right word? Documentarian. Did I say that right? Aaron. No, I think. Yeah. <laughs> or she's like, sounds good to me. Aaron. Sounds good to me. Aaron, write that out. Yes. <laughs> Confirm please. So this, guy uh he thinks that something paranormal might well have happened to the family but knowing they were in the house where a mass murder occurred they fed into it by scaring themselves and of course later they saw how popular their story was and became more open to making money from it that i can see that i can see them being genuinely scared and then they feel like okay i'm safe but oh wait there's so much interest in it oh wait there's a book oh wait like that i can see it's harder to convince me why I like why this family would just like up and 
and leave in the middle of the night and leave everything behind, especially because like as a new homeowner, I'm literally sinking every dime I have into this goddamn house that we're building. I'm not going to fucking walk away from it without a very fucking good reason. You know what I mean? And it sounds like that's kind of like where they were at, but I don't know. I can see if it was genuine um, for them and then people came to offer them money. Like who wouldn't take that after some terrible experience where you had, you know, you lost money, you, you know, had to completely uproot your life and your children across the country, et cetera. So of course, I mean, who wouldn't want to take advantage of that financial opportunity? I can imagine the opportunity. Yeah. I mean, I've done shadier shit for money. I'm going to be straight. (laughs) I mean, it is what it is. Archie, don't tell anybody that you know what I've done. I'm all do tell. No, I I have no knowledge of anything. (laughs) Checks checks on its way, right? Of course it is. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Tens of Patreon dollars. Um. (laughs) Is this the shady shit that you do for money? (laughs) There is, and now that you're a part of the team, you're going to start doing shady shit for money. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know about start, maybe. We I mean, continue. We <laughs> agreement coming your way. Yeah. Hold Sorry, on exactly. Email address. <laughs> <laughs> our people will be contacting your people. Um, at any rate, George and Kathy Lutz divorced in 1988. Kathy Lutz died in 2004 from emphysema, and George died in 2006 from heart failure. DeFeo remains incarcerated, serving six 25-year-to-life sentences at Sullivan Correctional Facility in the town of Fallsburg, New York. He has been there for the last 45 years. Wow. Some, wow. Yeah. Some fun facts. If you can believe that I pulled some fun facts out of the goddamn ether on this place. Um, Before you go. I mean, I love a good fun fact. (sighs) People still go to visit the home to take pictures, even though the exterior has been renovated and the iconic quarter moon windows have been replaced. Uh, Owners since the Lutzes have not had any supernatural or creepy experiences in the house. The next owner after the Lutzes reportedly purchased the home for $55,000. So, again. So, ownership is in your grasp. That's a fucking steal, man. (laughs) Because listen to this. In 2010, the home was purchased for $950,000. Oh, yeah. Man, that's a hell of an upsell. Uh huh. In 2016, the house became Realtor.com's most popular home of the week. A listing describes the house as, quote, a stately center hall colonial on Amityville River, a large boathouse, plus two car garage, plus boat slip, mint condition. And lastly, and I checked this for myself, Zillow describes the house as, quote, the legendary Amityville home and Mm. lists its value as $663,877. And no fucking joke, it does. It does. Although if you Google, um, if you not Google, but if you like go to Zillow and you enter in 108 Ocean Avenue, the house is blurred out. 
But it does say on there, the legendary Amityville home. Of course. No no one's stupid. They know what the fuck this is. Um, So at the end of the day, guys, none of us can disagree that whether it's true or it's an outrageous hoax, the Amityville Horror House is just too chilling a yarn to be allowed to slip from our imagination. And I think that that's true. I think think it's one of the most famous um, uh, horror movies I've ever seen. I think the story of the murders and the subsequent hauntings, there's something about both certainly the murders, but definitely the hauntings, that is it just enough to like, mm, who wouldn't believe that a house where somebody killed his fucking family wouldn't be horribly haunted? I don't know. I just think it's, I don't know. Tell me your thoughts at the end of the long, long story that is the Amityville Horror. Archie, uh, I, what do you got? Yeah, what do you got? At the end of the day, Arch, like you I'm, know, I'm at a loss. I'm at a complete loss. Do you think that it's haunted, or do you think it's bullshit, or do you think it is haunted, but some parts were embellished to be bullshit? I I will go with that. Me too. That's what I think too. Yeah, I yeah. think I think I think it's been embellished to make a whole bunch of money mm-hmm. on something that would probably be considered to be something in everyone's backyard and just embellished the shit out of it and it turned into a huge money-making scheme well you know what i had actually watched um on history's mysteries on youtube i had watched an interview with george and kathy lutz and they it both admitted and this was long after their divorce they had both admitted that they had gotten into spiritualism and not necessarily the occult, but they had started to dabble a little bit into transcendental meditation, which transcendental meditation in and of itself is not a bad thing, but if you have a proclivity or a fascination with the occult or anything like it, I don't know, I think... Laura, what do you think? Like, you're the Irish Catholic. Yeah, <laughs> or, I really want. Um, like, what do you like? What are your thoughts on all of that kind of stuff? The transcendental meditation. All of it, yeah. Like, um, or the occult, or like, do you think that you can dabble into stuff like Ouija boards and and shit like that? Like, what's your yes, idea? I don't. That? I don't think the Ouija board that we played with at our seventh you know, great uh, sleepovers is calling any demons to the house. Um, You know, I I think that's just silliness, but with the story and the haunting, um, I think after such a notorious crime, like where something terrible takes place, you're going to have feelings walking into that, just knowing it. Right. So you're going to walk into that place and, just because it's that place, you're going to like feel heaviness. You know, it's just kind of like a natural reaction to just knowing that something so awful took place and you're standing in that place, you know, like you're going to feel that. Yeah. So if something, if there really was a haunting, 
Um, I agree, but if there was something that happened there, it is definitely not what we saw in the movies or in the book. It certainly was very, very mild comparatively to the stories that were told later. Except Um, when Ryan Reynolds told the story, because obviously that was true. And we know Ryan doesn't lie. I mean, obviously (laughs) there was at one point a man in a rainstorm in a white t-shirt. And that's all that matters. And that's all that matters. (laughs) And his name was Ryan Reynolds. And I don't find, I don't think uh, transcendental meditation is um, in any way a cult. Um, I don't think so either. It's just meditation where you have a, like a, a word that usually repeats. It's just a way of meditation. It's not, um, it's not yeah. outside the ordinary, you know, it's like saying I did guided meditations that were, you know, I think that the, I think the intent is there though, too. I think if you were to, I mean, meditation, I think if you were to like really like hardcore focus on any one singular thing, and say that thing was, you know, the devil or demons or what have you. I think you could probably at that point then invoke meditation can be anything that you make it. And I think that um, for most people, when they meditate, it's it's about clearing the mind. And it's it's about just kind of letting the energy around you sort of clear out some of the clutter that, that everyday life kind of brings in um it's about but, being present in the moment yeah yeah being Slowing present down, in the being moment present. exactly but if i think if you're thinking about um and you're inviting some of this more dark energy in i think that that's i certainly think that that is possible um well and you're that, thinking about it so much right like if you're if you're that fixated on something like of course you're going to feel that around you if that's like you're really focused on exactly some negative things like that crazy things like that then yeah how could you not if you're that's obviously the forefront of your mind exactly exactly so um so yeah guys that is the amityville house uh in all of its many layers of of glory um when i when i did this research on it i went down so many rabbit holes i didn't think i would ever come up i was like wait now i'm in a fucking lawsuit wait what is happening here <laughs> i really thought i was just going to research like a murder and some haunting no it got it got to be far more um into that so as you guys have heard we have a lot of different opinions about about this um about this home, but what we cannot deny any of us is that, you know, like I said, this, this house is intriguing and it, it still sparks a wonderful, hopefully healthy debate in um, conversation. I do think that there are things in the home. Um, I don't know exactly where they originate from. Uh, we probably will never know because, you know, it is a private residence and, um, Zach Bagans has yet to be convincing of letting the owner <laughs> let them investigate. Not, I'm not saying he's tried. I don't know. I'm just assuming. Um, but that is the Amityville Horror House. Also, I said horror, not whorehouse. 
Horror. That would be a very different episode. That would be a very different, it's a very different podcast. Uh, <laughs> um, join Archie and Laura for their MAPS podcast where they discuss the Amityville Whorehouse. Uh, <laughs> now this podcast is starting to sound like a really good idea. Uh, yeah, I mean. Are you ready for this? Yeah, they're going to do a sideboard conversation when we're done here. <laughs> Anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining us. This was a very long episode. It was a very important episode, I think, too, because I'm Archie and I were texting on one of our breaks. And I'm like, she's doing so great, and Archie's like, she really is. We are Laura. We love your take. You're doing. You're you're challenging us, and right in. Yeah. No, I'm loving it. I'm enjoying myself so so much. I really am. Yeah. So I'm so glad. I'm super You've, excited. Uh, let me come and hang out and. Talk shit about your theories. I'm enjoying it so very much. <laughs> you know what? I think that's a good thing because I think that, I mean, granted, we've only been doing it a year, but I think Archie and I play off each other well enough to know that, like, um, like if I start talking really passionately about a subject and Archie's like, well, I'm not really buying it, uh, and I'm just sort of like, then don't say it. Like, Shut up. You know, I, I really, I kind of want a little bit, um, when we were talking, like we kind of want a little bit more of an edgier podcast and, um, you bring that edge. And so the last two episodes have been really amazing, really wonderful. Um, we certainly will hear from the fans as to what they think. And, um, I know that they're going to have, they're going to have really positive reviews. I know that they will, because you bring a different, um, take to it. And I, I think, but that's really important. Oh, Arch. shucks, Carrie. Also, you're so pretty. <laughs> well, they can't see me. Except that, I mean, I can see her, but she's not Brian Reynolds pretty. You know? Listen, like, who is? Really? Like, that's Brian. a pretty high fucking standard, Carrie. Like, <laughs> <Sorry>. God damn. <laughs> I've been podcasting for hours. What the fuck Brian do you Reynolds think I'm supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? Pretty. If you want that, you're going to have to start drinking a lot heavier. Come on now. I know. I'm so sorry. <laughs> But let's talk about Ray Reynolds for a minute. No, I'm just kidding. Archie's like, I'm going to blow my head off if you don't wrap this shit up. Yeah, okay. Well, I'm out. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Okay, so Arch, should um, do you want to tell them where they can find us or do you want to have Laura tell them where they can find us? Oh, I'm not going to put that stress on Laura. Not yet. Thank you. <laughs> We can be found. Oh, I was like, are you going to do it though? Or like... <laughs> we can like, be oh. found everywhere you enjoy your favorite podcasts. We are also all over social media at HOH Podcast. Also can be found at HOHpodcast.com. And we are also on Patreon at HOH Podcast. Good job, Archie. Thank you. Yay. Archie, Archie can go to bed now. He's. Been very, very tired. He's been waiting. It's nighty night time. All right. With that being said, I'm the fuck out of here. Yeah, I gotta jam. I gotta go take care of these kids. All right. Bye, guys. We love you. And we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.